0: Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped, in Rephidim, and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us out, brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take with your hand your rod which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So So he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not?
1: Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Please be seated.
2: Good morning. Would you please join me in an opening prayer as we uh, come before God in his word this morning. God, our Heavenly Father, as we worship you in the word this morning, open our eyes through the Spirit. Help us to see your attributes. Help us to see Christ's glory. And help us to see our lives in light of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a couple uh, open Sundays uh, here uh, for the next several weeks. It's kind of Elder's Choice, uh, it, and uh, Ralph will be preaching next Sunday, and then Steve's got a couple messages coming, and we're kind of in between. We will be returning to Acts for the summer, but uh, it's going to be a little bit of a, a mixed bag for the next couple weeks, so uh, just whatever the Lord's put on each of our hearts will go that direction, so be watching your emails so you know where we're headed and where we're going and what scripture we're going to prepare for that week, so... Um, What the Lord laid on my heart this week was to be in Exodus this morning. So please turn, if you have not, or re-find your place in Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to look at the account of the battle with Amalek. So from verse 8 on through down through 16 to the end of the chapter. Um, You know, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, right? And it's the account of what God did. We have the people of Israel moving here, but it really is an account of what God did to deliver his chosen people out of slavery, right? In the beginning of Exodus, they begin, they are in Egypt, right? They're 440 years in bondage in Egypt. So that's where Exodus begins. And we journey with the Israelites out of that slavery on their way towards the promised land and on towards glory and the promises that God has made to them. You know, Studying the Old Testament is such a great opportunity, and there's such great insights there. We don't want to miss that. We don't want to overlook, well, that's the old, and now there's the new. There's much richness in the Old Testament. It gives us great insights into the nature of God, who he is, what he's like, what his character is. It also has much to reveal about the coming Christ, right? The evidence of Christ, that scarlet thread of redemption is woven throughout the Old Testament, And it's there, you know, pointing towards the coming Christ for the people of Israel at the time and also for us now as believers to see God's hand and work throughout the beginning, from the beginning of time that He will then carry out till the end of time. So I encourage you, when you have an opportunity and when you're studying the Old Testament, have some of these things in your mind. Be looking for God's character. As you're reading an Old Testament passage or someone's preaching on it, think about what does this passage tell me about the nature of God? What do I learn about God the Father um, from this passage? A second thing to be looking for is, what evidence of Christ is there? Sometimes you're almost a little bit of a detective then as you go through the scripture and say, what's this scripture saying about the Savior? How's this pointing towards Christ? What's this revealing about him? So anyway, with that as a backdrop, as we look at Exodus, the word itself means a going out. And that kind of makes sense, right, because that's what's going on here. It implies a journey, and that's what we found, is Israel is journeying from slavery to the promised land. But the book of I- also has a spiritual aspect, right? It's not just a historical account of what happened to Israel, but it has a spiritual aspect for the believer today. And it speaks about our journey, right, out of slavery, out of bondage to sin, which would represent Egypt, towards the promised land. So as the Israelites progress here, and as they journey, we have an opportunity to journey along with them and learn about walking with God. A little bit of background. It's always difficult to helicopter drop right into a piece of, uh, piece of Scripture. Exodus 17 um, is fairly early after they've exited Egypt. So chapter 13 is when God sets them free from Egypt, right? So we've just had all the plagues, Ten plagues upon Egypt, Pharaoh finally relents, sends them out in chapter 13. We move along in chapter 14, Egypt, Pharaoh's heart hardens again, they pursue them, and the Israelites get to stand still and see the mighty hand of God wipe out the armies of Egypt that were pursuing them at the Red Sea. They also progress along, and in the previous chapters right before 17, we see God's precision of manna, for them. He gives them food to live on in the wilderness. And then in the context, in the reading we had this morning, and we'll see there's some important context in the first half of 17, is um, they've been given water, right? Water from a rock, a miraculous supply of water. So we're very early in their journey out of Egypt with God, but already, you know, ample evidence of God's mighty hand and God's provision for his people as they go. And really at this point, aside from some grumbling, right, which we begin to hear in the pages of Scripture, everything seems to be going pretty smoothly, right? They started in point A in Egypt, we've crossed the Red Sea and we're on our way to point B in Canaan, right? Very smooth sailing it seems. But wait, something strange happens here, doesn't it, in this smooth sailing? Or maybe we ask ourselves, is it really so strange because now they face some opposition. There's Amalek. There's a battle. There's difficulty. There's struggle. There might be fear. There might be concern. Their journey from slavery to Canaan is going to involve some God-appointed lessons for them to learn. And, you know, our journey from the slavery of sin to our ultimate rest in glory with Christ, we're going to face some obstacles, some battles some opposition along the way as well. So as believers, believers are journeying together on the way from slavery to a complete victory and glory in Christ, which will come when he returns. And we will have battles along the way. So a way to kind of organize and set up um, how we're going to kind of parse out the particular scripture here. We're going to first look at the battle's foe. So, verses 8 and 9, we're going to look at the battle's foe. The second section, we're going to look at the battle's flow. Okay? In 10, uh, excuse me, chapters, yeah, chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, we'll look at the battle's flow. And then, finally, we're going to look in 14 and 16 at the battle's fruit. Couldn't quite get it to rhyme. I had foe, flow, and fruit. So... But anyway, we'll look at how did the battle go. How does that sound? So the battle's foe, the battle's flow, and the battle's fruit. And the overarching principle, I think if you could walk away with one thing while you're all alert here to write on a piece of paper, is God provides the means for lasting victory in the battles that enter our lives. This all-powerful God provides the means for lasting victory in the battles it enter our lives so let's open and take a look at the foe to be conquered here verses 8 and 9 then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim and Moses said unto Joshua choose us out men and go out fight with Amalek tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand so this foe who are they what are they doing why are they coming and fighting Right? What's, what's the conflict all about? What's at the root here? So first, it says, then came Amalek. And that would sound like an individual. Right? Amalek is a name, um, but actually it's referring to an entire nation called the Amalekites. So we'll see them throughout scripture as well. Amalek is the, is the people group, and the Amalekites are the particular people. And these folks are descendants of Esau. Okay? They come from the line of Esau. Now, Esau's could be a familiar name um, to most of you and probably should. He was one of the twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. In fact, he was the firstborn, and then Jacob was the secondborn of those two twins. So that's kind of Esau's place in the scripture. And when we come across Esau or his descendants like Amalek or the Amalekites, there's another meaning Right? They, they represent something. They, as a people group, represent a spiritual truth. And what they represent is one that would live for the flesh or what is seen in the world. Okay, so when you come across Esau or his descendants, as you're reading through the Old Testament, the parallel God's drawing here is one who is worldly or fleshly-minded, okay, not minded about the things of God. Now, why would we say that about Esau? Esau. Well, it's evidenced probably most directly in the way he treated his birthright. I think this will probably be familiar to most. It's Genesis 25, 29 through 34. I'm going to read this from the Amplified Bible. It says, Jacob was boiling a lentil stew one day, and Esau came from the field and was faint with hunger. So here we have the two boys. We have Jacob and Esau, the two twins. They have a lot of competition going on, right? They... And we've got all sorts of things going on that kind of puts them at odds with each other for for quite a bit of their lives. So Jacob's here. He's cooking up some stew. And Esau's come in from a hunting expedition, as he liked to do, and he was faint with hunger. He was very hungry. And Esau said to Jacob, I beg of you, let me have some of that red lentil stew to eat, for I am faint and famished. And Jacob answered, Jacob answered, Then sell me today your birthright, the right of the firstborn. And Esau said, see here, I'm at the point of death. What good can this birthright be to me? So Jacob said, swear to me today that you are selling your birthright to me. And he swore it to Jacob, and he sold him his birthright. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and he ate and drank and rose up and went on his way. And then here's God's summary of what happened. Thus Esau scorned his birthright as beneath his notice. The birthright was a spiritual heritage of the Lord. It involved, you know, goods eventually. You know, the, the elder got more of the goods of the father. But it also involved the blessing of Abraham. And it involved, there was a very spiritual aspect in this family for this birthright. And we see... That Esau to satisfy hunger. It might have been strong hunger. Right? You've all been hungry, right? You could understand. He's very hungry, and he comes out and he smells. I mean, he must have been really hungry because lentil stew is not necessarily my favorite. I've had some good ones, but you know, you know, lentil stew is uh, is on his radar screen, and he's willing to set aside promises of God, blessings of God, a birthright that God would give him to meet his temporary, his current, his flesh-felt needs. So when you see Esau in the Old Testament, it's speaking of a battle of the flesh. And that's what we've got here. The flesh is the foe being fought in this battle. We've been talking, 17 is fairly early in the Israelites' journey from the Promised Land. This is the first battle that they're called to fight. The previous was God's hand all the way along the way, right? When they were at the Red Sea, did God say go kill the Egyptians? He said no, stand still, right, and see the hand of the Lord. But this is different, right? This is the foe they need to fight. And you know their flesh really is a foe they needed to fight at this point because what was going on previously about the manna and about the water? Grumble, 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 grumble. Isn't that an evidence of the flesh? They're saying, God, this isn't what I signed up for. I'm not getting well fed here. I'm not getting enough water. Boy, Egypt was really grand. You know, that grumbling and that complaining about one's lot, as they were doing here, is an evidence that that's being done in the flesh. So we also see that this is not the the only time they're going to battle this foe. And you know, as believers, our flesh is a common and ever-present enemy. Turn with me. Let's go to Romans 7, 21 through 25. Romans 7, 21 through 25. We're going to look at the believer now and our battle with the flesh. Are we so different from Israel? Okay. 7, beginning in verse 21. I find then a law... That when I would do good, evil is present within me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from this body of this death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh law of sin. So what do we see here? It's kind of a little circular thing Paul goes through here, but what he's saying is, I know the right thing to do, but there's this urge to do the wrong thing that's in competition, right? He shows this inner battle that even Paul goes through about, what am I going to do? What am I going to follow? I've got this flesh, right? These desires that, thank God through Jesus Christ, I can conquer, So Paul faced these. Let's take a look at James. James chapter 4, chapters 1 through 3. Turn on along. James 4, 1 through 3. Question is posed here. From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not... You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you have not, because you ask not. You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss, that you might consume it upon your own lusts, upon your own fleshly desires. He's speaking of there. So this battle that the Israelites are facing with their flesh here in Exodus 17 is a battle we also as believers face every day that we walk. There are battles... To be, fight, to be fought. And you know, doesn't it, isn't it a terrible enemy? Doesn't it really just kind of come out when we're a little bit discouraged or feeling a little bit tired or a little bit weak? Right? Doesn't it seek to take unfair advantage of situations like that? All right, so there's the foe. The second question we pose here as we come to the scripture is, why fight? Right? Why a battle? From the Amalekite side, well, why did they want to fight? Right? What, what's in it for them? Well, again, let's think about it. They're fleshly. They're worldly-minded. In the context of 17, this area that Israel's in, just miraculously a well has sprung up there. Right? Water is flowing out of a rock. And, there's, and in the desert economy, where these people lived and herded, right, water was gold. Right? This is an opportunity. Right? This is a chance to cash in. They didn't really own this land. This wasn't land that was normally part of their, their territory. They kind of passed through with their herds. You know, it was on the outskirts. So one of the possibilities is they just in the flesh said, we, we want that spring. We're going to go take it away from that rabble of slaves, right? What? Uh, who are they? Right? What claim do they have here? We, we've we got an opportunity. You know, let's take it. Let's go for it. Or perhaps maybe they were fearful about this large group of people. Say, what, where did they come from? What's going on? You know, there was maybe a fear and a self-preservation and a self-protection. And we see in Deuteronomy another account of this, we won't go there this morning, that actually the Amalekites' strategy was to pick off the stragglers at first. So they kind of hung around the edges, and anybody who was weak, anybody who was wounded, anybody who straggled a little bit, they fell upon. Pretty awful foe, right? Pretty awful foe, these Amalekites. So what about Israel's side? We certainly see Israel didn't look to initiate this battle. Right? They didn't walk out and say, we're going to go conquer. They're following God. Right? They're following the pillar, uh, you know, the cloud. They're following the presence of God. So they're just, more or less, aside from the grumbling, obediently where God wants them and going along with God. And this is the first battle that they have to fight. You think about it from their perspective. They had no reason for any kind of confidence in their own strength or their own ability. What are they at this point? Recently escaped slaves from Egypt who actually, right prior to leaving Egypt, had been under very heavy oppression. Their rations had been cut, their workload had been up. They, They were in a pretty physically weakened state They certainly weren't some mighty conquering army that was going to go out and do great things by the sword. So, why did they go ahead and fight? Well, again, placing this in the context of what's going on in Exodus, like we did in the introduction, they have just been delivered from Egypt. They've just seen the hand of the Lord work in ways that no people maybe had ever seen before. They'd seen ten plagues fall in the ni- mightiest nation in the world, Egypt, and bring it to its knees. You know, God completely, in the course of maybe a month or so, maybe two months, uh, You know, how long did the ten plagues go? Right? He brought the mightiest nation on the face of the earth to ruin. Right? They saw the Red Sea part. They walked through on dry gl- ground, and they saw it come back together and swallow up their enemies. They'd been given manna by the hand of God. It just... Shows up, there it is on the ground, every morning. They've seen water for their needs come from a rock. So as they enter this battle, they have no cause for confidence in themselves, and every cause for a great confidence in God, in his mighty hand, to see them through what he's brought into their path. What he's brought into their path. So as we look at the foe, what I want to encourage you is Battles will come into our lives. Battles will. Steve made reference to it even in the opening this morning. We will face battles in our lives. This one happens to be with the flesh that we're going to look at this morning. And we need to be ready to engage in the battle and take God with us. We need to be ready, like Israel here, to engage in the battle and take God with us with our confidence anchored in him. So, this morning, are you engaged in some type of battle? Maybe it is a battle with the flesh that you've been waging for some time now. What battle has God brought into your life? What battle are you facing? As you fight the battle, where's your confidence lie? Does it lie in yourself? Try a little harder, pray a little more earnestly read a little more scripture those aren't bad things but are you trusting in yourself in those things or is your confidence on god in the battle the other question is maybe you're not engaged in a battle and you should be maybe there's a battle out there you need to be engaged in there is a battle to be fought there is an enemy he's picking off the weaklings he's gaining ground that isn't his in your life. Are you willing to engage in this battle because you're confident in God this morning? Will you take up the battle in the power and the confidence of God? Well, now we know who the foe is here in Exodus. and Now we're going to look at how the battle went, right? what happened in the battle. So back to Exodus 17, if you're not back there already we're going to read down 10 through 13. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So we see in verse 10, there's a two-pronged attack going on here, right? A two-pronged approach to the battle. We've got Joshua, who's active, right? He's in the battle with the men of Israel, right? So there's an active part of the battle, right? There's, a, there's an engagement that has to happen in the battle. But we've got then also... On top of the hill, Moses, Aaron, and her, right? Moses, Aaron, and her, with the rod of God. And that represents prayer. So as we look at the battles, there's a time for action. There's a time of prayer. And prayer and action go together as we fight these battles that come into our lives. Moses is also up there. He's brought something with him, right? He hasn't gone alone. He's brought the rod of God with him, right? And the rod's going to be held up during the battle for all to see, What an encouragement that would be, right? Wasn't it through this rod that all those acts were done, right? The plagues, when Moses held up the rod, when the Red Sea came back together. There's an association, not, you know, that this stick of wood is an idol, right, that they're going to follow, but it is a tangible, visible evidence of them, for them, of the hand of God, right? And God's power with them. So what an encouragement is there in the battle to be able to look up and see there are those praying, And the power of God is over this battle for us. right? We can win. We have confidence with the battle, with God with us. You need to actively fight with God's strength in prayer. Now I've found in the study of the Word that the Word can really come alive if we can really identify with the thoughts and the feelings of the people in the Word that we're reading about. Sometimes you you kind of read through the scripture and oh yeah, okay, so Moses went up on the top of the hill and he held up his hands and the battle went this way and that. So, you know, this text though provides a really great opportunity to empathize with Moses and to know and really understand what Moses was thinking and feeling and what Joshua was probably thinking and feeling. So I'd like to kind of try as a church together to work to make the text come a little more alive this morning, help it jump off the page. So what was Moses called to do? Raise his hands. Let's join Moses. Everybody raise your hands. Now, if something physically limits you from doing this, you know, go ahead and just kind of watch. You can, you can go with us. Now, when Moses raised his hands, I think he raised them all the way. No bent elbows. And I think his fingers were really pointing right? Up towards God. Right? Now, he had the rod in his hands, so I, you know, if you have a small child, you'd like to hold up, you know, that, you know, simulate the rod. No, we won't do that. But, okay, hands up, right? Everybody's hands up. We're going we're to kind of understand what Moses was feeling while the battle goes on. So, now, keep them up. Keep them up. Because if, what happens if they go down? If your hands go down, they begin to lose, right? Now, think about it. You know, Moses is watching this. He's up on the hill with his hands up, and and the, the staff in his hands, and he's looking down, and he goes, Oh, and his hands start to come down, and his people start to lose. Those are friends. Those are family. Right? Those are important people to him down there. And he's like, Oh, I've got to get my hands back up. Right? So he's got them up. And, oh, you know, it starts to, does it start to, you start to feel it a little bit? Just, you know, if I had one of those fancy phones, this would be on like Facebook. If I had a fancy phone and Facebook, it'd be on in an instant. But anyway. Back to the story, right? So Moses has his hands up, right? And as long as he can keep them up, you know, his friends, the people he cares about, the people he's leading are safe, right? They're sound as long as he keeps them up. But, if, but at Joel, if, if, if his hand goes down, right, or, or if his fingers start to curl down or his elbows start to bend a little bit, oh, that's not good, right? They, they start to lose. So Moses is like, okay, Lord, here I go, right? I'm, I'm going to get my hands up. Oh, Joshua, right? He's down there in the battle too, right? So we got Joshua down there, and he's fighting. You know, he's in the fight, and, you know, the fight's probably starting out pretty well because Moses is like, his hands are strong, right? They're up there, but as the day wears on, right, Moses' hands, we see in the scripture, no, 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 Frank, don't put him down. Oh, no, don't follow me. No, 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 don't follow me. You guys, you guys are Moses. Keep him up there. Keep him up there, right? So Joshua will like, oh, Moses' hands are down, we're losing. There goes there goes my best friend and my brother, you know, and we're getting slaughtered down here, and oh the hands are up again, forward into the battle. Right? So can you kind of think and feel what the people are going through here? Right? And it's hard. Right? It's hard for Moses. Is it hard? Yeah, it's a little bit hard right now. So what happens? What occurs? Oh, hands up. I don't want anybody perishing out there. Right. You, you don't want to be, you know, Michael, you don't want to be Kevin that goes down next. So, you know, keep them up there good and strong. So what happens next? So Moses' hands were heavy. Right. This is a burden that Moses is bearing on behalf of the people. And his hands do get heavy. And they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. Now, see, I didn't even have you all stand up. All right. So Moses was standing why he was doing this. But we see two men take some initiative here. Right? As this battle is ebbing and flowing, right? Aaron and her are watching. Right? They're seeing what's going on. They're realizing it too. Right? They're aware of what's going on. They're aware as those hands go down, you know, we're losing and the hands go up and they're going to take some initiative. So the first thing they do, and this is something I have missed every time I've gone through this scripture is they set him on a stone. I always remember the part about them coming along and helping out, hold up his hands. But they set him on a stone. I had not seen that before. What's the stone? What's the meaning of the stone? Why, why a stone? Well, we see water come out of a rock, right, earlier in 17. I won't make you do this all day. But, oh, 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 I see some people perishing. Come on, just a couple more minutes. Stay with me. Come on, we can do this, right? Remember, you're going in your own strength right now. Right? This is just you. Right? We'll improve the situation here in a minute. Or two. Um, or three. Do I hear four? No. So, so, this, right? so, they set him on a stone or a rock. They give him a firm foundation and a resting place. Now, that rock in Exodus that the water comes from is a type of Christ. Here comes Christ into the story. What did they set him on? They set him on the solid rock. Didn't Christ talk about somebody putting his, putting his self upon a stone, right? A wise man. Didn't we? Didn't Steve just preach about that? Right. So, what they're doing is they're giving him a firm foundation, right? We're bringing Christ into the equation. He's the cornerstone that the New Testament talks about. So, as you see rock and stone in the scripture, it's often referring to Christ. So, the first thing they do is Moses. We're going to stabilize you. We're going to put you on firm footing. We're going to put you on the rock, right? Jesus Christ, the word. Step number one. (laughs) How are we doing? It's wearisome, right? It it really starts to burn in your shoulders. For me, it does. It really gets me right here. So anyway, all right. So what's the next thing they do? Right, what's the next thing they do? They see the battle for what it is and they actively enter into the struggle and support Moses as the battle rages here. So what I want you to do, right? the next thing they do is they actually physically get involved. Right? They come alongside and they help hold up Moses' hands. So kind of in and around, it, this doesn't have to be a highly organized thing. So yeah, In and around, those sitting around you, Somebody choose to keep your hands up, and a couple people choose just to put your arms on their arms and help hold their arms up. All right, so let's just kind of work as a team here a little bit. Right? Doesn't that feel, doesn't that improve things greatly, right, to have a little support and a little help and someone come alongside? All right, let's go ahead and put your arms down. Thank you. you all very good to, uh, to come along with that. So thank you very much. Uh, for being willing to participate in that. But doesn't the scripture come alive the more we can identify with it? Right? Now, all you'll be doing Bible study and doing all sorts of interesting things now, maybe. But that's great, and it really does help. But I want to notice something here, and that's why I had you put your arms down, because eventually all you think about is keeping your arms up. So um, a couple of the important takeaways from from the scripture and the exercise here. Think about Aaron and her. Did Moses say, hey, a little help here? All right, come help me. Help. Help. You know, hey, we don't see that that happened in scripture. I mean, maybe Moses did, but what I see is two men aware of a situation, aware of what's going on, aware of the battle that's going on and what needs to be done in taking action unasked. Right. They step in. They see the battle for what it is and they actively enter into the struggle and support Moses until the wildest battle rages. They had strength. They had support. They don't take away or remove it, right? Moses' task, what he was doing, did not change. Right? The battle did not instantaneously end. But they came alongside, lent their strength, what they could, to the cause that was at hand. Until the victory was won. Look at verse 13. And Joshua disconfitted Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. There was a complete and total victory at the end of the day that we see here. There's a great New Testament parallel to this. Let's turn to Galatians six two through five. You know, we just such great agreement between the, the Old and the New Testament, because it's the same God from beginning to end. And by and large, we're somewhat the same people from beginning to end. So Galatians 2, or excuse me, Galatians 6, beginning in chapter 2. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 2. Am I, like, confusing everybody as much as myself at this point? Galatians 6, verse 2. All right. It says, "...bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." For if a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let every man prove his own work. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Isn't that an interesting scripture? Because at the beginning it talks about bearing one another's burdens. And at the end of the scripture it talks about every man bearing his own burden. There's, God's got a plan and a design in the burdens that we bear that we bear and to learn what God wants us to learn there is a bearing of the burden that each individual does so God can speak to us and teach us individually but church it's not God's intent that we stand out there alone like the Lone Ranger right, until our arms just fall off and they fall down and there's defeat there is an opportunity to come alongside And help bear those burdens together. The burden doesn't disappear, but the help comes in the midst of the burden. So out of this second section, I want to encourage you that battles are not won in our own strength. The battle is not won in our own strength. We need a firm foundation on God, on His Christ, on his word. We need a firm foundation, and we need the support and help of others. We need the support and help of others in the battle. Now I ask this question knowing probably the answer for several. How are your spiritual arms this morning? Are they feeling pretty heavy? Have you been standing a long time? with The burden that God's placed, fighting a battle that God's brought. Maybe you feel like the enemy is starting to gain some ground. Are you open to some help? Are you open to someone coming along? Putting an arm on your arm? Not giving up the burden. Not setting down what God's brought into your life. Not passing the buck. But having real true people come and help you. Another question. Are you operating firmly from solid ground? Are you founded on the rock? And I really asked this question to two groups this morning. The first group is one that has not called on Christ for salvation. That's a possibility. That your rock isn't your life is not founded on this rock solid salvation that Christ has won for you. Maybe you're counting on coming to this church every Sunday. We'll earn you some favor or as evidence of belief, or your family association, you're from a good Christian family, or you're doing good works, or your intellect, or any number of other things that Steve described a couple weeks ago as sand, right? They're sand. What's going to happen when the battle comes and the storm comes into your life? You're going to be washed away. But God offers a firm rock to stand on each and every one in this room today and that rock is Jesus Christ and it's his work on the cross it's his effort, it's his righteousness that takes your feet from the miry clay and sets them on a solid rock if you cannot with assurance this morning say yes, I'm standing on the rock of Christ It's on Jesus alone, on his sacrifice alone, on God's gift of grace alone. Please, talk to someone spiritual that you respect. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to a parent. Talk to a Christian brother or sister. It's the most important question of the morning. You need to be on the rock for when the battles come. But there is a second group here this morning. There are those that stand on the rock, right, that have made that profession and placed their faith completely in Jesus Christ. So, how firmly are you rooted on the rock right now? Are you chasing other things? Are you about other things? Are you relying on other things? Are you not staying upon the rock? And then kind of one final question before we move on to the next section. Maybe you're not currently in a raging battle. Right? There were periods here we'll see Israel, they're not in a battle. Or maybe your arms aren't weary. Right? The, the burden in the battle you're fighting is your arms are not weary. So whose arms do you need to go help hold up? Are you aware of weary arms around you? That's the first step. Are you prayerful before God, wondering, where are some weary arms that I can go held up? That's a normal part of being a Christian. Where are they, and will you go? All right, so we've seen the foe. We've seen the flow, and now we're going to look at how did it go, right? The battle's fruit. Romans 8.28 tells us, in 29, that God's working all these things together for good. He's got a purpose in these things. He brought this battle to Israel. And what we want to do is look at what were some of his purposes in it. What's the fruit? What's the outcome of these battles? So, let's look in verse 14. The Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So, first thing does is God commands Moses to write it down, right? So one of the fruits is a permanent record of this event for them moving forward. I had not known until I studied it this week. This is the first time in Scripture God tells Moses to write something down. This is the first thing. God says, write this down. Write down an account of the battle. Write down the account of how we prevailed, how Israel prevailed over the enemy of the flesh. Write this down. It's It's like the beginning of Scripture right here. Right. Now Moses, we believe, wrote the first five books. Right? But this is the first time we directly see God coming to Moses. Because right? this is before the Ten Commandments. And saying, write something down. Right? So this is important to God. Right? This is the beginning of an incorporation of things into Scripture. So why is it here? I think it gives future encouragement. Right? Remember what God did today. When you face the same thing again, he'll, you know, he's the same God. You know, it builds trust and confidence really early in this time as Israel follows him, right? Because they were following him. You know, why did this attack occur? Well, they can be confident in God's care for them. It'll give them strength when future battles arise, right? A strength, something to draw on, something tangible, right, of God's care for them. I think it also tells them, in verse 16, to keep from making any kind of... um, alliance with the flesh, any kind of compromise with Amalek, right? Because they say, God's going to utterly remove Amalek from under heaven. And he said, from now on, you're going to have war with Amalek. So he's instructing them in this as well, is don't compromise. Don't compromise with the flesh. Don't come alongside. You are going to battle this. This is going to be a battle for you, Israel, moving forward. And we see that. In fact, sometimes Amalek wins, comes out on top. Sometimes Israel comes out on top in this ongoing battle between them. If you're interested, I'm just going to give you some scriptures to look at that kind of traces Amalek and Israel through, through the word. Um, you know, maybe this afternoon or something if you, you care to do this. Judges 6.33. Judges 6.33. 1 Samuel 14.48. 1 Samuel 15.7. 1 Samuel 27, 8, and 1 Samuel 30, 1 through 20. So, as you read through those, what you'll see again is the battle rages. Right? Sometimes one side seems to predominate and sometimes the other. But over time, what we get to is Israel wins the day. And it comes in the time of David. Turn with me, 2 Samuel 8, 11, and 12. Second Samuel 8, 11 and 12. Okay, this speaking of David, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and the gold that he had Dedicated of all the nations which he had subdued. Okay, so this is coming near the end of David's reign. He's collecting things for the temple. And these are the nations which David subdued, of Syria, of Moab, of the children of Ammon, of the Philistines, and of Amalek. There's Amalek. Look closely. That's the last time you see Amalek in the pages of the Scripture as a viable nation. I think there's some references in the New Testament, you know, drawing some of these comparisons. But that's the end. What God said was going to occur in verse 16 occurs. The Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Then in 14, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. There is a sure and complete victory out there ahead of us in these battles. We can't lose heart. We need to connect with that and hold on to that. Because, you know, we battle this flesh continually. There are these daily skirmishes. And some of our enemies in the flesh just seem to keep coming back and need to be beat back again and again. But don't make an alliance or a league. We need to remember the victories that we have had and move ahead and hope in this promise of total coming victory. Because God does promise that Christ will return, and there will be a total victory. You know, because of Christ, eventually that old man will be defeated, and we will put off corruption and put on incorruption. I've got two last references. First please go with me. First Corinthians fifteen, fifty-one through fifty-four. First Corinthians fifteen fifty one through fifty-four. The speaking of the coming total victory over the flesh when Christ returns. The writer here says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Speaking of the return of Christ, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal, must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal have should put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Victory's coming. Right? Victory's coming. We've seen a battle here. Right? The battle's not the war. Right? That's the other thing we can draw from this is Israel fought a battle here. It's not the entire war. Many sides have won battles and lost wars, or lost battles and won wars. But I encourage you this morning, remember, this war, we know how it ends. We know who wins, and it's Christ, the risen Savior. And those who are in Christ go on to victory with him. There's one other fruit from this battle that I found as I looked through Exodus. And there's a deeper relationship forged with God this way. Right? Had they not gone through this battle, they would not have learned something about God that they did learn. Looking in verse 15, Moses built an altar and called the name Jehovah Right? God is my banner. What does this mean? What's God being a banner? Well, it means that they were covered and rallied by the presence and power of God in the battle. Right? A banner, especially in ancient times, communication on the battlefield was very difficult. The banner was a rallying point. Right? The troops followed the banner. When the banner went ahead, you went ahead. When the banner went back, you went back. When the banner went down, you were defeated. The banner was a place, if you got separated, right, you're fighting the battle hand on hand, and all of a sudden you're one of the only ones of your type around, the banner was the place of safety right, to go back to for further instructions, to regroup, to move ahead. And really, in essence, as Moses held up that rod, it served as a banner, right? It was a rallying point. It was a focal point for the battle that they drew strength and encouragement from. So did Moses do what God told him to do? God told him to write this down for a memorial. And Moses did that. He was also told to rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. He did that as well. And we have biblical proof. Look at Deuteronomy 33.27. Last cross-reference. Let's go there. Deuteronomy, not too far, 33.27. We're coming to the end of Deuteronomy. This is the end of Moses' life. He's not going to go on into the promised land with him, and he's speaking a final blessing to the people. And does he remember what happened? 33.27 says, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy them. Did the battle draw Moses and the people closer to God? Did they learn more about God, their banner? I think they did. Speaking of arms here, a very direct tie into the battle there. So, church, we need to memorialize the battles that God wins. We need, when God delivers us and we win a battle, do we just go on? Or do we do we set that down? Do we hold on to that? Do we put it somewhere for future reference? So we need to memorialize the battles of God's land, and we also need to hope in this coming complete victory in the war. Never lose sight of where the war is going. So this morning, are you struggling somewhere for a consistent victory? Is there a foe, maybe in your flesh, that needs to be conquered this morning? Are you marking the victories of God in your life and recalling those as you move ahead? Can you recount, maybe to some at the tables this afternoon as we sit, some of the battles God's taken you through and brought you to victory? Can you recount those? Are there promises of God from His word that you carry when you go into battle? Are you drawing on this word, this resource? And is God your banner? Are you covered and rallied to the protection and the power of God when the battle comes? Is that the banner you rally to? There's a lot of banners out there. Steve's talked about this in other sermons, right? There's lots of other things that are waving out there, saying, come, right? This is where you'll get strength. This is where you'll get help. This is where you'll get protection. There's only one banner we should be rallying to, and that's the banner of God. So this morning, we've taken just a small... Part of the exodus, right? The going out, the journey that the Israelites did. But we now know we also have a journey. We have an exodus from slavery to glory as well. And enemies and battles are going to cross our paths along the route. And one of them will be our flesh from our old nature. We also now know we're not alone in this journey. We're not without resources to fight battles. We have prayer. We have Christ, the rock. We have each other, fellow believers. And we have God, most of all, our banner, our word. So, back to the theme God provides the means for lasting victory in the battles that enter our lives. God does provide all the means for lasting victory in the battles that enter our lives. So, let's go on and enter the battle in the power and the promises of God, and not flee from the field and from the enemy. Yield no ground to our foe in the battle of life. God's word is a firm foundation. Prayer is an effective weapon. And fellow believers are welcome burden bearers as the battle flows around us. We rally to God's banner. We stay with him until the battle is complete. And then he is praised and memorialized as our strong tower, as our banner, as our deliverer at the battle's finish. And we can repeat this pattern until the war's sure and final victory won by Jesus Christ is complete. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for providing lasting victory in the battles that we face. We thank you and look for Christ's ultimate, total victory in the war. Father, we are more than conquerors in Christ. And Father, may you just be that banner that we rally to throughout the battles that you bring. I ask this in Jesus' name.